Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlund, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. I have a wonderful guest today for you. Ryan Dusick is an associate marriage and family therapist with an MA in clinical psychology and the founding drummer of the band Maroon 5. After retiring from his performing career due to chronic injuries sustained from years of touring, he spent a decade suffering with depression, anxiety, alcoholism before finding recovery in 2016 and beginning a whole new life filled with purpose and meaning as a therapist, author, and mental health advocate. Today, Ryan is going to introduce his new book, Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. So in this interview, Ryan shares candidly about what it was like to be at the height of his recording career and how Maroon 5 was taking off and they were selling millions of records and albums and touring Yet for him, he was suffering in a lot of physical pain and anxiety and how eventually he had to leave the band and going through all of that trauma and challenge and how he found his way through it to the other side to make a new life full of meaning, purpose and fulfillment. It was great to interview Ryan. He was just so open about his struggle and was just authentic in, in sharing and really wants to help others who might be struggling in some kind of emotional pain or with mental health issues. So it was great to have Ryan on the podcast and, and talk with him. I really enjoyed it and I hope you enjoy it as well. So stay tuned for that. Quick reminder, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I do read them. And thank you all for the people who have taken the time to do that. That really means a lot to me, and I really appreciate it. All right, stay tuned for this upcoming episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. I have a wonderful guest today, Brian Dusick, and he is going to share his story 
about, I guess, in a way, kind of being at the top, fame and fortune, and with a chronic injury, losing all that, and then dealing with the aftermath of all that and dealing with addiction and coping with all of that pain with alcohol and drugs. And let's just start there, Ryan. You introduce yourself and tell us about you. Well, first off, thank you for having me on, Dwayne. You're welcome. I'm Ryan. And wow, you know, introducing myself at this point in my life is more complicated than it used to be. <laughs> I would imagine. Yep. It's been a long journey. And to get to where I am now as a therapist and with a book coming out called Harder to Breathe about my story and my journey, I'm at a place in my life where I'm talking to people and hopefully being helpful in a way in terms of inspiring hope and recovery. For me, it was you know, it goes back before the band, really, my story, realizing that I did have anxiety and some other issues as a teenager, even before we started the band. I didn't really have a name for it then. But when we started the band, I was 16 years old. We started in, in my parents' garage. We spent a decade building this band from there to, you know, the world's biggest stages. And right. by the time I was in my mid to late 20s, you know, we were becoming one of the biggest bands in the world, Maroon 5. And in the midst of that, I really had, I struggled physically on the road as a drummer with joint and, and nerve issues. And in retrospect, I realized psychologically of struggling as well. And it all kind of came together and, and formed this breakdown that led to the end of my career uh, as a performer, which was devastating. And I went through depression and, you know, grief, dealing with that loss of identity. Um, I was self-medicating with alcohol and some other things. My anxiety became worse during that time over those years. Right, right. You know, one of the things as I was reading your book, kind of setting this up, is that this whole, like you said, 10 years of building to this place where in some ways, I guess it's the dream everybody wants, right? You know, fame and fortune and all of that. But I, I think the part that kind of really struck me is how this, it didn't just happen. It was this time of like being together with all of these people and, and building it. And it was so much a part of your life when you were young, sneaking into clubs and, and, you know, it was su such a part of it. Yeah, there was so much of that life in the band that was a part of my identity and my passion and my sense of purpose, really. Because I was very connected to the other guys in the band. Adam, Jesse, and Mickey were, you know, my best friends when we were teenagers. We spent the majority of our free time together and our time at school. I mean, we were together all the time, you know. And we went from being these idiot kids, you know, watching right. Beavis and Butthead and trying to emulate Pearl Jam, Nirvana, and uh, Soundgarden to all of a sudden, you know, writing better and better songs and growing as as musicians, as creative people, as, you know, individuals just growing up and becoming young men. We did that all together. And we really kind of evolved and grew as a band, as we evolved and grew as friends and as people individually. So it was so much a part of the fabric of who I was in my own self-identity. And so losing that and having to walk away from it right at the moment when we were reaching the pinnacle of success was like having the rug just completely torn out from under me in terms of self-identity and and self-esteem right 
one of the things I was wondering as you were talking was, did this fame and fortune and this this success, did it come to you pretty quickly? Like here you're building this over 10 years and then did it just kind of shoot up and here you are in this space? Yes and no. It felt very gradual. Obviously, when you're a decade into your career already, uh, anything that happens feels like it was a long time coming, even though the, you know, the world and the public, they see an overnight success. Even when it did finally happen in 2004 that we had, you know, global success and major tours and number one hits and all that stuff. We were two years deep into promoting that album already. And those two years were some of the most inspiring, enjoyable, and exhausting years of my life. Right, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you put out an album. We didn't we didn't even release it until we were six months into touring. We had a long-term plan to build a grassroots following. And we went out there in a van for like a year and a half, just driving around the country over and over again. And it was fun. You know, it was a lot of hard work and it was exhausting, but it was a lot of fun. And then we moved up to having a bus. And then we, you know, each time we we traveled around and every time we did another tour opening for another more established artist, the, the crowds were getting bigger. Our first single was growing a little bit at radio. We were starting to get a little buzz at MTV and VH1. So when we finally had a little bit of a hit and we had our first headlining tour, it was something that we felt like we'd been working towards for a long time and it was a gradual process. But then... In the next year, when the second single came out, This Love, and that was a massive hit, everything did change a lot quicker. It ramped up in terms of all of a sudden we're playing on Saturday Night Live and we're, you know, at the Grammy Awards and we're selling out arenas. And so, yeah, it did feel like all of a sudden there was a tipping point, but it was a long time coming. Right. And you, you said earlier that this anxiety that you see now that you can look back on was there and was kind of present. And, you know, in your book, in, in, in the first chapter, you talk about that, the ending of all of that, that being at that top and then having to, to leave the band due to your injury, but also due to this kind of underlying anxiety. And I was wondering, what, what was that like? Like, I, I'm imagining, and I'm just making up, that, you know, the pressure had to be immense. You've got all of these people around you, probably like pushing this and just you're going like a like a freight train, I would think. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. It was like a freight train. And the pressure, it was a kind of a perfect storm of pressure because there was internal and external pressure that met up at that point in my life and led to the sort of breakdown that I went through. Because I put a lot of pressure on myself from the time I was young. I'm not entirely sure why that's the case, because it wasn't the kind of thing where my parents were like very you know, expecting of big things right. or putting a lot of pressure on me. But I think that I was a high achieving kid growing up and I got a lot of good feedback when I did things well. So I, I, that can be a little addicting, I suppose, you know, uh, yeah, sort of yeah. Pavlovian, you know, just you do well and people uh, love it when you do well. So you want to do well. So I put a lot of pressure on myself to, to be sort of very responsible and to do everything well. And to, I was a perfectionist sort of by nature. And that bled into what was a very freeing experience playing the drums, I started playing the drums because it was like catharsis, it was release. It, and it was sort of a spiritual bond with my bandmates in terms of just escaping to this world of music together. 
But all of a sudden, you're performing at a level where the demands are very high. You're performing night after night. You're showing up in the morning at radio stations and photo shoots and whatever else, meet and greets and things. And you have to be on all the time. And, you know, I was kind of a, an introvert by nature. I, I liked having my own time, my downtime. And it just started to become exhausting to be up and on all the time and having to go on stage and perform even when I was not feeling up to it, especially when we started traveling overseas and there was jet lag. And, you know, you've you've got people that have bought tickets months ago to show up and you don't want to let them down. And you've got promoters who have a lot of riding on your tour and every single thing you do along the way, you have to show up as the best version of yourself, you know, when you're on a TV show or on a radio show or wherever it is, you got to be on point. So there is that external pressure ramping up on top of the internal pressure that I put on myself to be perfect and to execute everything, not just, you know, to a T in terms of performance, but like, look like I'm really enjoying it. And, you know, right. And the pressure's there. And then you talk about the injury from your pitching and, I'm imagining now you're at this peak level. You also have this physical injury. You're also kind of have a, uh, I think what you're describing, like that propensity for anxiety. And it's kind of like this kettle is just, this pot is starting to to boil, it sounds like. Yeah, it was a combination of a lot of factors because I did have that that physical injury. And that was from pitching in high school. Baseball was my first love and passion. When I was 12 years old, I was a really good pitcher. And I dreamed of being, you know, on the Dodgers someday. I'm from LA. That, of course, didn't work out. And I kind of threw my arm out in high school pitching for the varsity team. And I had like chronic tendonitis in my shoulder, which I tried to work back through, come back several times. And every time it just seemed to keep coming back, the the pain in the shoulder and then my coordination or my mechanics started breaking down a bit. And at the time, I just, I didn't really understand it. I just knew the ball wasn't coming out of my hand, right? It wasn't the same as it used to be. I didn't feel the same kind of power and control. Looking back, I think that as well, it kind of mirrors what happened with the drums. It was a combination of the physical injury with the psychological element of the pressure I put on myself to perform and feeling like I wasn't at my best and feeling like I was not up to the task. And so my body kind of giving out on me or, or creating some what they call dystonia, like mechanics were changing and not really able to execute the things that I had done a million times before in the way that I used to. So I understand both of those things now as similar in that I was really putting a lot of strain on myself physically and psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And my body just kind of said, this is enough. You can't take this anymore. And so the same thing happened with the drums. I was having pain in my shoulder. I was having all of a sudden, all this stiffness and weird coordination issues and mechanics breaking down, kept pushing through it, kept trying to play through it and come back and figure out how to how to do it and do it well. And it just kept getting worse. My body telling me, you know, you have to stop this, you're killing yourself until it came to that point where my body just kind of shut down. It just couldn't coordinate playing the drums anymore. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Wow. And then what happened at that point? Because you guys are at the top of the charts and it's huge and you got to go. You can't do this anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, the band, I would, I probably would have played until my arms fell off if, cause I was just like going to push through it and try to just pretend like this wasn't happening, you know, in denial in some ways. And the band eventually obviously could tell that something was wrong. And they said, you know, you need to go home and figure out what's going on. And they even said to me at the time, take six months, take a year, whatever it takes, just get yourself better and come back and we'll be here. Which looking back on was really, you know, a beautiful thing for them to say that that we were so bonded to, to each other, that they wouldn't just say, okay, you're done. They would give me that opportunity to heal. But it just didn't work out that way. I went home and I went to every kind of doctor you can possibly go to. And all of them had a slightly different analysis. Nobody really had what felt to me like a definitive definition for what was wrong. You know, I clearly had the inflammation in the shoulder. And then a neurologist told me I, I had like slowing of the nerves in my right arm. You know, I went to acupuncture, physical therapy, a rheumatologist. I mean, every kind of doctor and specialist you can go to. And nothing seemed to really get what was going on and so it came time to make another album finally and the band was just really worried that even if i could get through the record somehow i would have a world tour booked you know after that and the same thing would happen and they'd have to cancel the tour and, and then look for another drummer again so it just became obvious at that point that it was time for them to move on without me and then i had to just kind of sit with the reality of it in that moment in some ways, it was a, it was a little relieving at first because it was like I had been under so much stress and so pained by this whole process that now I could just relax. It was like a little bit of a sigh of relief, you know, this is finally over. But then it settles in, you know, what I've lost right. and what I'm grieving and and the questions like, who am I and what am I, you know, moving forward from here, if I'm not the drummer in that band, what am I? And what do I do with the rest of my life? How, how could anything I do possibly match up with what that life was supposed to be? Yeah. I mean, I would imagine being in that kind of crisis would be a really, really dark place. And that's when you turn to alcohol or something to just numb it all out. Yeah, I really didn't know any other way at that point, which is, which is amazing because I was not uh, an addict, I think. I don't know, by nature, if maybe it's in my blood, if it's my temperament, I was not an addict by self-definition before that moment. When I drank, it was up until that point in my life, it was always something that facilitated good times. You know, it was going out with friends right. and we're having a good time already and having a little buzz makes it better, right? But then at that point, it became self-medication, right? It became, I'm in pain and I want to escape the pain or I want to put on a mask of some kind that is not feeling this pain. So that's when it turned, it took a turn for the darker and for what I would call addiction at that point. I mean, looking back, I can recognize the things before that, that were the precursors to addiction. I think that my right. mind, my attitude towards alcohol and, and some of my, my just obsessive thoughts and sort of compulsive behaviors were in line with the early stages of addiction. But there was that tipping point when it became something to escape rather than something to just uh, enjoy. Right. So how did you, how long did that last? And, and how did you walk through that? Because here you are in this space, your whole identity, like you, you know, describe in the book 
is just all wrapped up as this drummer for this band and this is what it is right and then all of a sudden that's gone and you're like i i just imagine like how painful that is and what a crisis that is and then how old were you when that happened like i was 28 when i walked away from the band so 28 still young what what is my life at this point and comparing it to like this is the measure right wow yeah yeah i mean and think about it that was my identity from age 16 to 28 was that band and those guys and everything that was wrapped up around it not just the band but like my whole social sphere was centered around the band all of my friends from college were all involved with that group of people so yeah i mean it was it was all of those questions. It was, where do I go from here? It was, how could anything match up to that? It ended up taking about a decade to really find closure and move on. And, I, and during that time, I went through all the, the stages of addiction that you hear about. At first, you know, when I reached that tipping point, I left the band. I went through a really heavy, dark time of of really feeling sorry for myself and heavily self-medicating and having you know, the first times where my drinking became a problem. And even a, a few people told me, you know, friends and family, they were concerned about me. And then I went through that phase of addiction that anyone who's gone through all, the whole cycle of it can probably relate to where I thought that I had control over it. Right. right. I, I said to myself, I'm getting my shit together. And now um, I'm just going to you know, all the, the mechanisms we try to control it. I'm only going to drink on the weekends. I'm only going to have a little wine at night. It's only going to be wine or beer. It's not going to be hard liquor. I'm not going to do any other drugs. I'm, I'm, you know, whatever it is that I, in that week and that month and that day and that minute used to rationalize the fact that this wasn't a problem and that I had control over it. Right. And so I did that for years and for a long time, of course, it felt like I had control because I could sober myself up when I needed to, you know, if there was a family event that I wanted to be my best self, I would take a break from drinking and I'd be, and I, I was good at showing up and pretending like everything was fine. Right. I'm doing well. I'm happy. But really Meanwhile, on the inside, <laughs> it's not the case. Right. right. It was all a mask, right? Underneath it, I was still really struggling. My, my self-esteem was completely in the, in the gutter. Uh, you know, just my confidence had gone away completely. And I was putting on this mask, this, you know, sort of alter ego that came out when I, you know, had a just the right chemical equation to feel like I was uh, capable of showing up in a presentable way. And then it would quickly after I, I could leave that situation, it would go down into the basement again in terms of the the self-loathing and the, and the punishing myself and self-sabotage, all the things that go right. through that cycle of of addiction. And it's so over time, in, in that illusion of control, everything got worse, of course. It didn't get better. It got to the point where the anxiety was every day, panic attacks, uh, even like agoraphobic, even like I had a hard time even just going out into the world without a drink or a pill or something to like self-medicate. And so it just went from slowly from a place of thinking I have this under control to I, I don't have this under control. My life has become completely unmanageable. And I had to be humbled enough to realize this is a disease that continues to get worse. And it's very obvious that if I continue going in the direction I'm going, it's not only going to continue to get worse, it's going to end with me dead. Right? right, right. And you talk about, you know, you had to be humbled and you have to have that humility to 
reach out to get support or, or do something? Yeah, it's hard, you know, because we, we all have pride, you know, on some level, addict or not. And that can get in the way of growth a lot of times. You know, it's like we think, oh, no, 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 I'm good. I got this. I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be strong. But there are some things that just being strong and using your willpower, are not, it's not the best method to get through. You know, and, and certainly addiction is is a big one in terms of if our way, if we had the, the way of getting through this, we would have solved it by now, right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but no, it's it, we need to be humbled enough to accept another way. And that's a really hard place to get to. So how did you start to see that? Like, how did you start to, you're, you know, you're in, in all of this addiction, you're hiding from, uh, you know, I want to just say kind of like a traumatic experience because, yeah. you know, here you are, your whole identity is just taken from you. I mean, that's just traumatic and you're hiding in, in addiction and all of this stuff. And so where was that point where you said, okay, I guess I need support. I need help. I need something different. Mm-hmm. Well, first off, the, you know, the idea of it being traumatic, that was something that took me a long time to identify that. And I really do now identify that there's a lot of trauma associated with everything that I went through. Oh, yeah. I had a hard time saying that because I felt like, oh, you know, who am I to say that it's to that level that I would call it trauma? I wasn't in a war zone. I didn't experience, you know, violent abuse growing up, you know, so I felt like, oh, I'm just being a whiny pop star. You know, I had it so bad. It's trauma. But trauma is relative to the context of the individual. And it was, I mean, it's just the extremes. You know, it's like trauma is about what, how it affects you. It's not about the the specifics of what happened. It was just the the extremes of going from something that was so self-defining and so exciting and inspiring to something so devastating and so difficult and so diminishing of my my confidence you know so yeah so working through the 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 trauma of that was definitely a big part of of recovery for me to answer your question though i think in the last maybe six months of my addiction there were a few things that happened that were really humbling and it got to that point where you know even when i thought i had control i didn't have control and it became very obvious to me and my girlfriend who i lived with finally kind of came to me and said you know i don't know what this is going to mean for our relationship, but I can't see you doing this to yourself anymore. And wow. she really was finally like really encouraging of me getting the help that I needed, checking myself into a rehab facility. I had I had been going to therapy. I'd been going through the motions and pretending like I was trying to help myself or convincing myself that I was trying right. to help myself, but not really fully committed to it. And so uh, when when she finally said that to me, and I, I it was in the midst of some of these really humbling moments of just like, wow, I really don't have control over this thing. We called my therapist together and asked for a recommendation. And I'm so grateful to have had her support, the therapist that, that was supporting me, my family, who was great. You know, I didn't really involve my family at first, but they a few weeks into my stay at rehab, I invited them to come down and see me. And I uh, went out to the, the Betty Ford Center uh-huh. And, Betty Ford. and that was the beginning of the journey for me. And it was very humbling. You know, it was like all of my best efforts, all of these ways I tried to exert control over this thing led me here to this moment, shaking and shivering in the detox wing of the Betty Ford Center. And so you find yourself in that in that environment. And all I could think to myself at that moment, having gone that far into my addiction was my way of doing things is clearly not working. I got to just do whatever they tell me to do at this point and just trust that there is 
even if I don't believe in a higher power by the 12 step definition or whatever definition, just there's my power within myself or this higher power that I've been, you know, ascribing to my drink uh, is clearly not working. And maybe somebody here can illuminate a new path for me that's going to be more helpful than what I've been trying. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, kind of going back a little bit, I think, you know, you sharing your story is so important because I think so many people can dismiss their trauma. Like, my trauma isn't worthy of care or isn't, I shouldn't be upset. I shouldn't have these feelings. I shouldn't be hurting, you know, because maybe all these other things in my life are so good. What do I have to complain about? And to be able to have the the compassion for you, you know, like maybe sometimes other people have to have compassion for us before we can have compassion for ourselves. But like going to the Betty Ford rehab kind of maybe started that for you. Like, wow, this is actually, I'm in pain. Yeah. And, you know, uh, can I curse on here? Is that okay? Yeah, you can totally curse. <laughs> to be honest, you know, hearing you talk about that, it, it was a mind fuck, really. Yeah. Because, because I, I felt like I didn't deserve the success in some ways. Mm-hmm. I felt I was, that was how low my self-esteem was. It was like, I don't deserve any of this. And, and then I would get mad at myself for not being more grateful. It was like, just be grateful. Like your life is so blessed. Like you, you had this wonderful experience and you had all this success and you're living from the fruits of that now. Why can't I enjoy that more? You know, why am I so upset? Why am I in so much pain? Why is my addiction, you know, escalating to this point? It was hard to wrap my head around the emotions because it didn't make sense. It's like any, I felt like anyone in my position should feel lucky. And yet I feel like self-loathing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that yeah. would make it worse. It's like a like a, a downward spiral or a, a vicious cycle in your mind in terms of like, I'm supposed to be able to move on with my life and feel good. And I can't right now for some reason, but I but I can't call it trauma because it wasn't trauma. It wasn't something horrible. So, yeah, I mean, it was just this this complete mindfuck in terms of how to wrap my head around it in a way that was going to be productive in any way for me moving forward. Yeah. And, and sometimes we can't do that on our own, right? We, we need other people to like walk us through that experience because we're in that, if you want to say that mind fuck thinking that just keeps us trapped and just in pain. And the only thing we know that can work is, is some kind of addictive behavior or, or addictive drugs or alcohol, whatever, just to change it because we have no way of doing it. Yeah, that was something that was extremely difficult when you just escape it, you know, take a chemical that lights up certain parts of your brain and allows you to just lift yourself right out of that momentary feeling just for some amount of minutes or hours. That's why it becomes addictive, right? Because it's, it's the easy way to do it. And you're like, okay, well for right now I'm, I'm not sitting in that pain. You don't realize though, that there's a heavy cost on the back end. Yeah. of that you might be lifted out for a couple hours while you're pretending like you're happy and joyful and having a good time at a bar but then you have to deal with what comes after that which is the shame yeah and the anxiety that comes when you come down from that high and the self-loathing that gets perpetuated by that cycle and it all feeds into why you're feeling the pain and then you need to self-medicate it even more because the pain keeps growing and then you're just wrapped in that cycle over and over again 
Yeah. Yeah. And you just, it's so hard to get out of it. When did you start to train? I guess, how do I ask this? Like there's that, that transition, that moment of like moving from that space of pain and, and hurt and trauma and in that cycle and starting to see the other side, you know, like, wait, there's something different here. How was that for you? Or when did that start to happen? It happened pretty early on, to be honest. You know, the first few days in there, of course, detox is never fun. I don't think you'll ever find right. anything enjoyable or inspiring about detox. However, once those sort of initial detox was far enough along that I could start to participate in therapy, and more important than that, in the community and the fellowship of the people that I was living with there, that was when it really started to change for me because I realized there were people there that were only a couple weeks ahead of me in the program and that to my eyes looked like they were thriving. You know, right. these people looked like they had something figured out that I didn't and it was exciting and inspiring and I wanted what they had. And so I was just, I was just very keenly aware that I, I just should, should pay attention to what they're doing and try to emulate it. And then the second wave of it came when I realized I was a week or two into that and feeling the difference in me and feeling that inspiration. And then seeing people that were a couple of weeks behind me that were coming in and they were struggling and really scared and in pain. And I could be helpful to them, even though I was barely just getting started in my recovery, just by showing a little bit, bit of compassion, you know, grabbing their bag and showing them to the room, acclimating them to the program and just giving them encouragement. I was being of service in a way that I was incapable of being, you know, showing up for another human being for a long time because I was so wrapped up in my own crap. Finding that in in this very newly found sobriety, I had something to offer. I had something meaningful to give was a powerful reinforcing comment on what recovery could be for me. And I wanted more of that. And I just kept seeking it out in terms of showing up and just being present and trying to be helpful. And that became a new sense of purpose and fulfillment for me. Yeah, definitely. And like writing your book, putting it out there so that other people can understand, see, I guess our, our mutual humanity, right? That we all are suffering in some way and we all have pain and we have hurt and it doesn't matter where it comes from or how it is. It's, it's just pain. Yeah. And a lot of ways, this book, Harder to Breathe, that I wrote that's coming out in a couple of weeks was the culmination of that for me, you know, and and the reason why I'm proud of it, you know, my journey of of having this new passion and purpose in life and wanting to be of service, be, be helpful to another human being and in whatever way I could led me back to school to become a therapist. I had volunteered at a recovery center for a couple of years in early sobriety. And that was a really meaningful experience for me just showing up and, and trying to be helpful and empathic. So I, I'm in this master's program of clinical psychology to become a, a counselor of some kind, a therapist, and doing a lot of self-reflection, kind of, you know, really, I'd been doing self-reflection in therapy and in the 12 steps and everything I was doing for my sobriety. Uh, but when you're in grad school for psychology, <laughs> yeah. you, have to, you, have, you have to write papers about self-reflection. And so it kind of just started to sort of come together in my mind what this all meant to me and realizing that my journey had a happy ending and that in that happy ending, there was hope in recovery and in finding 
a new path in life and that if I can tell my story in a way that is honest and vulnerable, that hopefully some people will relate to not necessarily the specifics in terms of being a rock star, you know, and having all that, but in terms of the feelings, because the feelings are the same for, yeah. for anyone that goes through some of these things, whether you're on top of the world or you're wherever else in the world. So writing this book was just an opportunity for me to put it out there and for people to relate to it and find hope in my story and hopefully see that there's hope for them as well. Yeah, definitely. So going into the field of marriage and family therapist, counselor, therapist, how has your experience helped you do that? I really think that my experience from the depths of my struggles to the heights of my success at different points in my life, all of it together is my my greatest strength as a therapist. You know, I think that if I had gone straight out of, you know, undergrad into grad school when I was 22 to become a therapist, I would have a very different set of skills to offer my clients than I do now. I think that being able to really understand what my clients are going through and connect with them and offer myself and my experience is the biggest and the most helpful thing that I can bring into what I do besides the, you know, the actual just nuts and bolts of sitting in a room with somebody and being empathic and being able to listen and and give them the support they need. Life experience really kind of informs for, at least for me, what I'm able to do to be helpful to those that are still struggling. Yeah. And, and as you're talking, I'm, uh, I'm just thinking about this whole journey you went through from like going all the way down and having no identity, like losing your identity to recreating yourself and in a, in a way that is deeply meaningful to you. You know, I can see that in, in your book and, and how you're talking, the vulnerability and, and just sharing your humanity. And it's, it's I, I love seeing that, uh, you know, that's part of what this podcast is all about in a way. It's like, how as human beings do we walk through all of our stuff? and go through this journey and and kind of come out the other side with this with a new sense of of purpose and meaning. Yeah, that's kind of the point of it all for me too, you know, it's just the only way it works is if you really just be vulnerable, you know. Yeah. And I think that that's so important for people to see because we spend so much of our time trying to pretend like we're um so strong and we don't have any vulnerabilities and as we were talking about earlier, the first step in recovery is being humbled enough to be able to allow yourself to be vulnerable and to ask for help. And so I think that I'd be doing a disservice to my clients, to people reading my book, to people listening to me on a podcast, if I wasn't fully transparent and fully, you know, just allowing myself to be vulnerable in the ways that were so scary for me when I got started, you know, just finding that the ability to get to that place to allow yourself to to say, I don't have it all figured out. I'm not okay. And that's okay. Because that's just the starting point, right? And and so as a, as trying just trying to be a model of what that looks like, and and to say, you can be in that place, and you can end up in a place of empowerment, and you can end up turning the page and finding fulfillment in life and finding purpose in life, and feeling that self confidence, either come back, or come for the first time for some people. And so if I did it, you know, you could do it too, as cliche as that sounds, that's kind of the message. It, well, it's a message of hope, right? It's it's a message that even in, in in when we're 
at the the lowest part in in our darkness and and we feel so lost that there there is a road out like you know reach out other people can support you so all right well we're we're kind of running on our time here so what i like to do at the end of the podcast is just if someone out there is struggling and they're hurting in some way and you could tell them one thing what would you want to say to them what would you what message would you want to give them well i would tell them that there's hope even if you can't see it right now even if your mind is telling you otherwise there is always hope and finding that hope is really so essential to finding recovery right where whatever form it comes in and for some people it's a spiritual journey you know it could be finding faith for other people it's seeing hope in other people's stories and you know, sometimes it's just having the right support system in place, you know, finding people that support you and give you hope. Whatever it is that can give you a glimmer of hope, that's what you need to hold on to and allow yourself to be vulnerable in the ways that we've described because you don't have to be strong. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to right. have the answers. All you need is that hope and the ability to reach out and ask for help. Awesome. Where can people find you if they want more information about your book they want more information about you where where can they find that well my book harder to breathe is coming out november 15th it's available for pre-order now on amazon and barnesandnoble.com and wherever else you order books i my website ryandustic.com is going up very soon so keep a lookout for that and right now you can check out everything that's going on with me on my instagram page ryan underscore michael underscore Dusik. All right. Thank you, Ryan, so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast, sharing your story, just so vulnerable and, and just open. And just thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for this opportunity. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. So check it out. There you can find Ryan's book, Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all and finding recovery. So go check that out. And don't forget, if you got a lot out of this episode today, subscribe to the podcast or share it with a friend. That really does mean a lot to me. And join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day, and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.